0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
1: there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky broadband. Switch your home to Sky broadband today. See sky.ie for more.
2: It's Wednesday, May the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we'll be joined by Dennis Staunton and Freya McClements to discuss the latest moves by the UK government on the Northern Ireland Protocol. But first of all, Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray from our political staff are here to discuss a subject which has been eating up the airwaves and the column inches over the past two weeks now. Yesterday, the government announced that it had agreed to move forward with its plans to relocate the National Maternity Hospital to the grounds of St Vincent's Hospital, in Dublin Four, the details of the ownership and control of the land on which the new hospital will sit have been the subject of extensive debate. But it does seem that the die is now cast. Is that right, Jen?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest hurdle, um, politically speaking, has been to get cabinet approval for this deal, which they got yesterday. So you'll remember that two weeks ago, at the cabinet, considered the memo brought by Stephen Donnelly, but other ministers, particularly uh and Green ministers, felt that not enough time effectively had been given to consider exactly the terms of this deal um, and that a period of two weeks would be sufficient to allow for a public debate on the matter and for the documents to be published that govern the deal um, and for those to be passed through at various committees. And in the Dáil, you know, we, we had a, a Q&A session with Stephen Donnelly last week Um, And I think, you know, Pat reported at the very outset, once that decision to defer for two weeks was made, that the government never had any intention whatsoever of changing any of the deal, of making any substantive changes whatsoever. Um, And that has come to come to pass. I mean, there was a lot of talk last week that certain things that were people viewed as problematic and that they would be addressed uh, by way of a change to the deal. I'm talking here about this clinically appropriate phrase, of course. Um, and in the end, that didn't come to pass. It was more that there was a, a, a note stitched into the memo, which parts of the government tried to sell as a major change. But we all know it's not a change whatsoever. So the difficult part, pol- politically speaking, um, is 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 done. Uh, albeit there is a vote uh, late tonight in the Dáil on this matter, brought by Sinn Féin, calling for the hospital to be uh, built on state-owned land. And uh, that's going to present some difficulty in terms of the Greens
2: yeah and we might talk about what might happen in that vote a little bit later, but can I just ask you, Jen, just to follow up on that because you have a, a very interesting kind of blow by blow of how this worked over the last the last week in particular and you you write in today's newspaper about the as you said Stephen Donnelly's appearance flanked by legal and medical experts who did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of their responses and then the committee heard from people opposed to this move, and you kind of see that as a as a pivotal moment in this.
3: I do. I think the, the, what happened last week was, you know, obviously this was the act, actually last week was the first proper week for a full debate on it. They talked about two weeks, but by the time everybody got their ducks in a row and organised who was appearing for what committee, it was really just a week effectively. Um, and last Tuesday evening, um, a document was sent to the health committee by Professor Deirdre Madden and Dr. Sarah McLaughlin. So these are two members of the board. In fact, Deirdre Madden is the deputy chair of the HSE board and they restated concerns that they had about state ownership of the land, about governance and about what that means and in, in potentially for uh, ethos and religious ethos, which has been one of the big topics of this debate. Um, and that kind of spooked people a little bit because these are two really, you know, eminent names. And I think so, somewhere in this debate, it's become the government and all the experts kind of versus Peter Boylan, even though that's not necessarily the case. It's just the way the debate has been... Framed, And obviously he's been one of the most vocal critics, so you can understand how that happened. But here we had two names who, you know, uh, were on this HSE board. So I think on Tuesday night, there was a bit of a wobble. Um, Stephen Donnelly gave a briefing to different political parties, including Fine Gael. And, you know, at first it was very difficult, unusually, to get a, a steer out of the Finnegalers about what had happened at that meeting. But um, ring them enough times Hugh and eventually they will answer and um, uh, eventually it became quite clear actually that they weren't happy at all. They weren't happy with this term clinically appropriate. They weren't happy that the, it had been fully explained that a 299 year lease is a form of ownership effectively technically. Um, And there was a couple of things they wanted to address. And they weren't happy about how the, most of all, they weren't happy about how the communications of this was handled. You know, they felt, a lot of Finnegators who I talked to after the meeting, felt that why had this been left to the very last week? If all of these things that the government were presenting as watertight facts, where there were no problems in X, Y or Z, how come they left it till the last week? Or actually after a mooted cabinet decision to sort this out, when they knew for years what the concerns were. We've we've talked about this for a decade. um. So that was, they were the problem. So it was a bit shaky on Tuesday night, a lot of grumblings going on, a lot of, oh, this is potentially not going to get through. So it really mattered, what I'm trying to say, is that it, it did really matter that Stephen Donnelly went before the health committee on Wednesday morning and gave a performance that was convincing. Um, I'm sure you're aware that Stephen Donnelly's media performances or performances elsewhere have been pilloried in the past. We all remember the trampoline incident, you know, So I think there was a bit of anxiety that, you know, this could go potentially wrong and this could present a real problem for the government. But actually, from my perspective, I thought he put in a really good performance. I thought he answered the questions politically that he could quite well. I thought he was calm. Uh, He didn't kind of do the Micheál Martin thing of this is all nonsense. Stop talking about it. Get over it. Move on. Nothing to see here. He said, you know, yes, I actually want to engage with all these concerns. Let's have four or five hours here and go through it. And then the questions that were more relevant to property law experts, they had... Um, a property law expert from the HSC there. They addressed that to him, the questions that were relevant about the state of the Hollow Street right now. They addressed that to the clinicians, the need for it. And I just think that particular hearing, he wandered in, well, he didn't wander in, he walked in and he was completely surrounded by all of these experts. And it was kind of striking visually, I thought, and I thought the whole thing was handled quite well. Um, and then the next day it was kind of time to hear the other side of the debate, which was Peter Boylan, who, like I said, has been a very vocal critic, and in fairness to Peter Boylan, who's kind of taken a bit of a kicking over the last while, he has raised concerns over the last couple of years that have borne out to be true about governance, and there have been changes to the board, uh, and changes, so like, to give him his dues, you know, he's kind of been portrayed as a bit of a crank, but in fairness, like over the last couple of years, he's the person who highlighted. It. But anyway, so he's before the committee. He has Simon Magar beside him, who is a solicitor. Um, and he's uh, been very active on Twitter talking about the problems that he sees with the deal in terms of the lease and, and uh, on the land. Um, and it was just the two of them. And I don't know whether it was politically tact, like tactically, the decision by the Finnegators and and Finnafall as well, to go for Magar instead and challenge him on his um, experience specifically in terms of commercial leases. But it was striking that, Peter Boylan was kind of looking on and he's kind of inscrutable at points but I felt at one point that you could see the frustration on his face that he had all these things he wanted to say but in fact it became this back and forth about McGar's experience and commercial leases and it was kind of tetchy and by the end of that kind of uh, uh hearing I kind of felt well I knew which one looked more impressive and it was the it was Donnelly's appearance with the other with the other clinicians and I've talked I've been talking to people in Hollis Street and in um, Vincent's and uh, clinicians, kind of, I would have stayed in touch with, and they did breathe a sigh of relief. Um, you know, I think one of the things that was said to me was the first time in the whole debate so far that they actually felt kind of vindicated that they were going to kind of get the result that they so desperately hoped for. Um, so, you know, those were the two things that I saw last week, and then of course. The debate played out on the airwaves, in the newspapers, and in the rest of the committee hearings and in the dull um, and brought us to where we were, I think, last uh, yesterday and Tuesday.
2: Right. Pat. I mean, there are people of substance and expertise, as Jen has said, on, on both sides of this particular argument, although, as she's also suggested, the preponderance of expert opinion falls on the side which seems to have prevailed. I'm not proposing that we get into the detail of the actual specific argument. People are well able to read the many, many articles and information which has been written about it over the, the last while or so. I'm more interested in the politics of it and how you think the government has navigated it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would direct listeners to that piece that, that Jen has in today's paper, which zeroes in on a couple of the key moments and it seems to me is a really good summary of, of, of how we got to where we are now. I I think that the the initial political management of this uh, issue created problems for the government. Uh, So if you recall, the first cabinet discussion on this two weeks ago was done in the immediate aftermath of a bank holiday weekend. And, you know, those sort of things matter in terms of managing a cabinet agenda. So instead of having, you know, the Monday before him where everybody... Uh, is at work. Everybody is focusing on the cabinet agenda. The three leaders have their run through the agenda in in the evening. Instead, you know, that Monday was a bank holiday, so people's eye wasn't on the ball, and an awful lot of ministers just tuned into the cabinet when they were at the cabinet meeting, and they knew that there, you know, there had been some objections and some concerns raised about this topic. So I think not sufficiently preparing the political ground both within the cabinet and outside in the broader public debate was what led to, you know, that sort of speed bump two weeks ago, the delay in the cabinet decision and its postponement uh, until yesterday. That having been said, it was always very clear to me that there wasn't going to be a change to the legal architecture that had been drawn up in this painstaking process over recent years. But what the government needed to do was to explain its position better, to get the preponderance of not just expert opinion, but the vast majority of the fact that the vast majority of doctors who will be working uh, in this hospital want it done on these terms and want it done as soon as possible. And, you know, once they were able to do that over recent weeks, allied to the insistence, I think, on the part of the Taoiseach's office that there wasn't going to be any further delays uh, in this, then I think that's what gave them the sort of political strength to push this through yesterday. And it's my view that the government was always, whether it put the decision off for another six months, it was always going to have to push this through over the objections of some people, and I think that that realisation was uppermost in the minds of people in government buildings in in recent weeks. So while they were prepared to engage in five-hour health committee meetings, they were always going to push this through yesterday.
2: And then, in terms of the the broader politics of it and the the role of the the opposition, Jen. I mean it. I mean, it is interesting to look at this through a political prism. Obviously, these are very serious issues, and are particularly serious issues for um, for women's health. I mean, reading Cathy Sheridan, our columnist in in today's Irish Times, and Kathy's somebody who's been covering the unhappy history of the Irish medical system, the Catholic Church and the treatment of women over over decades. And she raises a couple of interesting points about the, the way this particular debate is planned out. And in a way, as she seems to suggest that, among other things, there's been a kind of a, on social media at least, a sort of vicious civil war between people who would have been on the same side only a few years ago when it came to the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment.
3: Yeah, I read Cathy's piece. I thought it was, as always, um, excellent um, yeah, it, there, it has led to this, because what happened was, you know, a couple of years ago, we had the debate on repealing the 8th, which in its way, obviously, was divisive, of course. But there were two clear camps, if you know what I mean. There was the one side who um, wanted to repeal the 8th, and the other side who didn't, and and that was kind of it. And I think this time around, what has happened, and, and Cathy references um, a journalist who was kind of took a lot of flack on Twitter. that journalist um Ellen Coyne, actually, and she obviously w- would have written a lot of pieces a couple of years ago um that were kind of essential reading, as Kathy says, for people on the pro-choice side. um and, you know, she very clearly made her her views known, and she was she did excellent reporting effectively. um and then fast forward to now, um and she you know, this is a journalist who said she's she's uh, a Catholic. And she writes a piece effectively saying, here are the facts on the maternity hospital and here's why X, Y and Z isn't true. And all hell breaks loose on Twitter. And that was just kind of emblematic of other kind of spots that were breaking out online. So what we saw were people who previously were all on the same side of the fence, pro-repeal, disagreeing on the future of women's healthcare because... It has really divided people because you have one camp now on this side who believe that this is absolutely the wrong thing to do and that any future hospital should be built on state fully state-owned land and that the building should be fully state-owned. And the reason why people say that is because they don't want any kind of connection or link or semblance of a link between state-run maternity care and uh, the church, effectively. But what that kind of fails, in my opinion, to recognise is that the nuns are out the nuns have been out for a while and um, they've sent their, they've divested their shareholding over to a new company as uh, company be secular. And we've gone through all those arguments and you don't need me to get into it. But then of course you have the other side who say the opposite. So it has led to something of this civil war amongst the re- repeal camp, which has been really interesting and fascinating. And I think it shows that in terms of the future debate on women's health care and perhaps social issues, it's not going to be as black and white as it was before. Um, but, you know, I I think that's kind of aside the point, really. I think the next big thing, really, in terms of this debate and in terms of the hospital and the move and the relocation and all that is actually tonight, like what happens in the doll with the Green Party. Um, and I was really interested to hear Leo Varadkar on the radio there a little while ago saying that when he heard that NASA Hurricane, the Green Party TD, was going to vote against the deal or vote with the Sinn Féin motion tonight, that he didn't lose any sleep over it. I mean, I just thought that was an interesting phrase. I mean, you, sh- you should lose sleep over a female, a prominent female outspoken member uh, of uh, the smallest party in your government expressing such strong issues and willing to go as far as voting against the government. Um, so there's a lot to kind of be parsed here. Um, but I, I think that whatever happens tonight and whatever happens next, the fact of the matter is, Hugh, this thing is going ahead. The tender documents will be the next phrase, the next part. The government want to expedite that. They want this built in four and a half to five years, and they say it'll be all right on the day and everybody will see that they were right, and there are no problems and and that's that really, and they they want to move it on. Mihal Martin has been very clear enough it's enough. Miriam Lord had a brilliant piece today talking about how he had his you know his penny's humble brag. When people say, Oh, that's a fine hospital you have there, you know, where did you get it? And then he says, Oh, this, you know, just Saint Vincent's tenor a year. So <laughs> we'll see, here, we'll see.
2: Yeah, Pat, I mean I wonder, you know, I mean the received political wisdom on the on, on these kinds of issues is that they don't they don't have an impact on you know, the political landscape in terms of how people will vote at the next election whenever the next election happens. I'm not sure how how true that is or it isn't. But there's an element of a particular Irish version of culture wars going on here that I do find, I find interesting. And in terms of what, what Jen is saying there, I mean, the reality is that for a variety of historical reasons, the Irish state is deeply entangled with a number of institutions which are becoming well, they're certainly becoming, they are no longer religious orders. I'm not sure exactly what kind of organisations they are now. But, you know, that can throw up further problems or controversies in the future, whether it be in medical care, provision of social services, uh, provision of education. I mean, is that going to be a sort of running uh, a running argument in Ireland? Or is it maybe just uh, a spat on Twitter?
0: I, uh, it, it, I'm not sure it's either or actually, Hugh. I think it's more than a spat on Twitter entertaining and all uh, as that aspect of it might be. But I'm not sure it's the culture wars either. And that's demonstrated by the fact that there's this kind of civil war amongst the repeal side or amongst people who would all have been on the, on the one side, which was a more kind of bona fide, kind of culture war type issue than this. But you're right, these issues will continue to pop up. The most obvious one would be divestment of church patronage of schools, particularly of primary schools, where almost 90% of schools are still under the patronage of the Catholic Church in a society that is uh, that is rapidly uh, secularising and is certainly vastly more secularised and un-Catholic than it was uh, 30 years ago. But that has been a very slow process, not least because, you know, when people are asked, should the primary school system be a lot less church dominated, although the extent to which patronage allows church to dominate schools is another another argument entirely. But my point is that people tend to be hugely in favour of church divestment of its patronage of, of many primary schools. But then when you ask them about their local primary school they often give you a different answer because they think that's working just fine and they don't necessarily see a baleful influence of the church on how their kids' primary school uh, operates. I mean, I'm going down uh, a slight bit of a side alleyway there, but I suppose the point is that these issues will continue to jump up in the areas that you've outlined, education, healthcare, social services and that, as the religious orders, which were such an enormous part of... Everyday life, not just through their provision of these services, but through their presence in society uh, in the Ireland of, of very recently, and now are to all intents and purposes almost extinct. And what the orders have done is, you know, they have tried to, yeah, you know, they've, 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 if you look at some of the, you know, the, the, the the religious orders that were involved in education, they've set up these trusts which intend to maintain the ethos of the order after the order, or the the ordained members uh, of the order are, are, are no longer around. And I think that was the fear that Peter Boylan particularly was pointing to, that just because the nuns are gone doesn't mean that they're Their nunly influences are gone. And I think that that this whole episode has been a useful exercise in pointing out the responsibility of the state to ensure that, to the extent that there may be, you know, religious ethos or an ethos associated with religious orders retained in these sort of institutions, that, you know, that is something. That you know the state has a say over, and that the communities that it serves are uh, are are happy with. Um, to your question of like, you know, is does this have a broader political significance? I'm not sure it does. To be honest, sometimes there are rows like this that go on for a couple of weeks, and they do have a lasting political uh, effect. Like if you think about the Catherine Zapone row last year, which had quite a political effect. But I think that had a lasting political effect because it played upon an existing public perception of the government or of politicians in power that they were only interested in jobs for uh, themselves and their mates, okay? Uh, Whereas I'm not sure that there is a widespread political perception that the state is operating hand in glove with Church organizations to sustain a religious ethos after the religious depart in in, uh, in this instance. So, to be honest, I'm not sure this will have any lasting political significance.
2: Just on the immediate politics of it, Jen, you mentioned the vote this evening. Uh, NASA Hurricane of the Green Party indicating that she will support the opposition motion, the Sinn Féin motion. If it were to come to pass, then it seems quite possible that NASA Hurricane loses the, the party whip and. Uh, is no longer a member of the government majority. Well, then that means that they're down to 81. They lost one um last year when they lost the by-election, they lose another one now. Uh, some people might look at those numbers and say there's 160 seats in the doll. the government has only 81. Uh, it's getting a little bit tight there. There doesn't seem to be much worry about that.
3: That's why I was saying I was kind of surprised to hear Leo Varadkar saying that he doesn't lose didn't lose any sleep last night over this. I mean, any losing any TD potentially from government benches is a sleep loss worthy matter in anyone's book, especially when, like you say, the numbers aren't exactly completely stacked in the government's favour. Um, and I would be really interested to see, like, what NASA, um, in particular, and 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 Patrick, to a lesser degree, um, who I think we're still a little bit in the dark about his plans. What NASA has said basically is that she has no intention of leaving the Green Party. She's no intention of walking out the door. But of course, if she votes against the government with Sinn Féin motion, that opens the prospect of her being expelled from the party, of her losing the party whip. Um, and she says that's a matter for the Green Party. So we'll have to wait and see exactly what happens this evening. I mean, the government thought they had this thing boxed off. Sinn Féin brought their motion uh, for a state-owned hospital and state-owned land uh, into the doll. It was looking a bit hairy because the Greens were feeling, you know, a bit unnerved by it and, and, and unhappy with the deal um, and the way it was rushed through. And then the government decided, well, we won't pose the motion, so therefore there won't be a vote. Happy days. Problem solved. But then kind of word got around yesterday, well, actually, opposition TDs can call a vote if there are 10 of them. And then we had the rural group saying, oh, yeah, we're going, we're going to do that. And then, of course, it became an issue again. So we're kind of at that stage of the day now trying to figure out what's Patrick Costello going to do. But either way, it's really bad news for the government. (laughs) It's really bad news for the Green Party, which has only a small number um, of TDs. And the last thing I would say in relation to, Pat was talking about kind of the the political impact. I don't see a political, I agree, I don't see a political impact on the government itself bar the loss of these TDs, which obviously is immediately apparent. But I do think there could be a longer term impact in that I definitely pick up that people feel that they haven't been listened to and that the concerns that they raised were completely ignored by the government who never had any intention of listening. And that perception of not being willing to listen, I think, can have a long-term consequence. Maybe come the polling day, nobody will remember. I do think there will be maybe a small contingent, maybe a larger contingent. I think there will be people who will remember that they had concerns about this historic, large estate investment in women's health care and maternity care, and they weren't listened to. Uh, and and that Micheál Martin and his own TDs, by the way, have told me that they've been angered and frustrated and that they've told him this about the way he handled it, about, you know, the way he pushed it through. So if there's a consequence electorally, then I think that's where it will come from.
2: Right. Just before we go, actually, Pat, I think you've just got some news on this issue.
0: Yeah, Hugh. So just as we were discussing there, the possibility of the government losing one TD, news has come through that they will lose a second uh, TD. Patrick. Costello, the Green TD from Dublin South Central, has said that he will support the Sinn Féin motion tonight, uh, which is aimed at ensuring the National Attorney Hostel is built on public land. Now, it's not certain at this point that there will be uh, a vote tonight, the rural... Uh, independent TDs are currently trying to get up the numbers. The Ten TDs they need to force a vote on this uh, on this tonight. But if that vote does take place, there's going to be a lot of toing and froing all afternoon around here in Leinster House. Uh, but if that vote does take place, two green TDs will vote against the government position on it and will therefore lose the whip on it. What are the implications of this for the government's majority? But look, it's not good news um, for the government's majority, that's for sure. I, I don't think the government's working majority is in danger. In practice, they tend to win votes quite comfortably, not least because not all the opposition TDs turn up to vote against them. And secondly, because uh, there is a group of independent TDs who habitually support the government. And if push came to shove and if the survival of the government was in any doubt, I think their votes could be relied upon. So I don't think the government's working majority is in uh, in danger but certainly as a political problem for the government and a political problem for the Green Party particularly it is now twice as big as we thought it was when we were talking about it just there
2: Right we'll leave it there for now Jen is going to leave us Pat is sticking with us we'll be discussing the Northern Ireland Protocol after the break
1: Never suffer the buffer again Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable sky broadband Whether you're streaming on the sofa in the bedroom. (laughs) Or swiping in the bathroom. Hey! Get out of here! I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base.
2: And welcome back, Pat Lee, He is still with us and I'm delighted to be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton and our Northern editor, Freya McClements. Um, Dennis, I'll go to you first. Liz Truss is speaking in the House of Commons yesterday. She indicated that her government is going to introduce this new legislation. What should we make of it all?
4: Well... The legislation that she's going to introduce, and I think they're going to introduce in the next few weeks, is uh, a unilateral action to essentially uh, rip out the central parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the bits that uh, place uh, Northern Ireland within uh, EU rules on customs and goods regulations, and to replace it with a system of their own, which uh, the British government says would uh, ensure that there was ease of access for uh, trade going Between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but they claim it would also uh, protect the European single market. But it basically involves the European Union trusting them and trusting British businesses to kind of say that if uh, they're shipping goods to Northern Ireland, that they're not going beyond Northern Ireland. And so if you basically say, this uh, sausage or whatever it is is not going to go past Northern Ireland, then you go through a green lane, and if the stuff is going into uh, the rest of the island across the border, then you go through a red lane and you then do whatever European procedures but it also includes things like under the protocol uh, the uh, goods produced in Northern Ireland have to uh, you know conform with uh, with eu Goods regulations with those standards. And basically, they're saying that actually you can have uh, a dual regulation system so that actually the goods can either conform to EU standards or to UK standards. Just take your pick. Which kind of doesn't really matter when standards are more or less the same as they are now for most things, but standards will diverge. Then they want to do other things like, for example, to remove the role of the European Court of Justice, to change the tax system. One of the parts of the single market rules is that. Northern Ireland can't suddenly change its VAT rules uh, without the say-so of the European Commission because it's you know, part of this whole single market kind of fair competition. And what the British government want to do is to basically be able to say that they in Britain can change whatever VAT rules they like. And so, they, so essentially what it does is that it removes the European Union role out of, uh, out of running this protocol.
2: So, I mean, I mean, we all know that there are real and significant problems with the implementation of the protocol as it stands, and that's why these negotiations have been going on for a couple of years now. But what you've just described there is effectively Britain unilaterally ripping up the protocol if this is passed. Yeah. And so then I suppose the question is, what is is the strategy behind this because this is quite a quite a slow motion process isn't it i mean the announcement yesterday is just the start of quite a slow legislative process that could take what a year or perhaps more
4: yeah it could take a year let's say they introduce it in uh, in june and then it's got to be uh, debated in the uh, house of commons then go to the lords then there's a whole process where it goes back and forth it's not clear if the uh, you know if the lords are going to reject it or not even if they don't it's, probably you're talking about six to nine months for the whole thing to get through all its stages. If, they do, if the Lords do reject it, they can uh, you know, delay the thing for a year. So let's say the Lords reject it, then under the Parliament Act, the House of Commons can come back in a year and pass it without the Lords' approval. So that adds another year to the whole thing. So what Liz Truss has been saying and what Boris Johnson has been saying is that they want to have a parallel track. So that while this legislation is going through and while they're pursuing this legislative option, that at the same time they'll keep talking to the European Union. But what Liz Truss was saying was that uh, they're open to any solution as long as it's what Britain is looking for. And so really what, what, what you've seen is that if you go back to last July, you remember that uh, when Lord Frost was still around, they produced a command paper where they set out these kinds of maximalist demands. And then the two sides entered into a negotiation. And then in October, the European Commission came up with uh, proposals for easing some of these problems with customs, simplifying the uh, procedures, so that they said that it would get rid of eighty percent of the paperwork, and uh, you know, so, so basically doing all these things to kind of try to address the practical difficulties. And the British government has not responded to those. Until now. And essentially, what they've said now is we reject those. They would actually make things worse because there are certain grace periods at the moment, which means that the protocol is not being fully implemented. If you were to fully implement the protocol, even with the easements that the European Commission is proposing, then that would be worse than the position we're in today. And anyway, We just want this thing to be, uh, completely renegotiated. So what they're saying is that it's like they're sort of, they're shouting at the European Union leaders and saying, will you please change the negotiating mandate that Maros Sefcovic has so that he is actually going to be allowed to rewrite the protocol? And the European Union leaders so far are basically saying, we, we can't hear you. And if we did hear you, we would say no.
2: Uh, and Pat, I want to come to you in a moment about the the European and uh, the Irish government government reaction. But Freya, I mean Boris Johnson was in was in Northern Ireland only a couple of days ago. He met all the he met all the major parties there. The argument made by Boris Johnson's government for what it's worth is that they're taking this action in order to protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, implicitly because the um the the unionist population of Ireland or the majority of their representatives um, are opposed to to the protocol to such an extent that in the form of the DUP they won't form an executive. I mean, that's... Supposedly, the rationale isn't it thin? Though some may find it.
5: Yeah, and I mean it's a pretty thin rationale because if if you want to look look at that in another way, you could say you know a majority of people in Northern Ireland opposed Brexit, and that happened anyway. And 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 certainly, if you want to break it down on a community basis, um, you know, all nationalists um and the alliance who were across community opposed Brexit. Um, I mean, I I think the problem is that that we're at the stage with this, you know, where we have been here so. Before so many times that nobody trusts the British government on on, on any side. Um, I mean, unionists certainly don't trust them, the DUP. Certainly don't don't trust them. And this has over time the arguments around around Brexit. Then we had the backstop and and then the the protocol. And over time, this debate around the, the protocol has become conflated with this question of, of identity and, and question of, of Northern Ireland's place in in the United Kingdom. And that's been deliberate on some parts, um, but it, it has become p- part of this narrative that the Good Friday Agreement has been in- imperiled by this. And I was actually just thinking about this last night and I was trying to think, right, on what basis actually is the Good Friday Agreement in- in- imperiled? Because this is an internationally binding agreement um, and we've Heard before in the not too distant past, how you know the British government has tried to overturn um, internationally binding agreements, but there is no threat to the Good Friday Agreement, and I'm not not suggesting this for the second, but I mean unless Britain decides to start tearing up um, this particular international treaty as well, which you know <laughs> n- never say never, but I mean I mean you know that that that's just not going to happen. So this idea that the Good Friday Agreement is somehow imperiled because unionism does not consent to the Northern Ireland protocol. You know, you, you, you're, you're, you, you can see I'm even getting tied up in knots talking about it because you, you're talking about two different things. And actually, if you really want to be pedantic about it, initially, unionism did consent. I mean, unionism could have had the backstop, which would have had no differentiation between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. The DUP didn't want that. And at the beginning of January last year, when the Northern Ireland Protocol had had come in, the DUP were extolling the virtues of of this. And and I I would argue that this has more to do with uh, fractures within the DUP, fractures within unionism, um, general electoral pressures, all of this, everything that culminated in the the, the coup against Arlene Foster and then her losing the leadership. You know there were an awful lot of other factors going around at this really febrile time in the beginning of of twenty twenty one and and where we are now. The outworking of, of this is that this this question of consent, the idea that somehow there must be unionist consent to the Northern Ireland Protocol. I mean, I mean that was never something that was on the table. And even when when you look at, I mean, the Northern Ireland Assembly gets to have a vote down the line on whether it wants the protocol to continue, that's not even a cross-community vote. That's just a simple majority vote. So, in effect, what you have now is you have strong-arm tactics and and the the very sort of pressing crisis that we have in Northern Ireland at the minute, where there is is no assembly, I mean, that was quite simply the DUP taking unilateral action, saying, right, well, we're, we're not going to agree a speaker in order to put pressure on the British government to deliver the action that we want. I mean, where is the consent in that? Because you have one party out of five main parties, bringing the whole thing down, if you like. Um, So yeah, there's a lot to be said on consent and the the mechanisms of it.
2: It's quite a mess. Pat, I try not to put on the old green-tinted glasses when we're discussing this because it is quite easy to become infuriated or agitated by some of this behaviour at Westminster. But people seem quite agitated in Dublin and government circles as well. You know, by the standards of diplomatic language, the language coming out of Dublin has been quite strong. And I gather from your writings on
0: the subject that the feelings behind the scenes are even stronger. Yeah, I mean, we should all be wary of the perils of putting on the green jersey when we're reporting and analysing and and this sort of thing. I think there's, you know, there's enough cheerleading, masquerading as, as journalism in much of the the British Tory press without repeating that trick here. So let's just, you know, report on what we see in front of us. And from my point of view, that is a deterioration in relations between Dublin and London, which in some respects brings them, you know, back 30, 40 years, really, you know, since, uh, not since I think, you know, the days of uh, Charles Ahi and Margaret Thatcher. Has there, uh, has there been such frostiness between uh, Dublin and London. At the same time the government in Dublin knows that we'll have to play some sort of a role in the forthcoming process between the UK and the EU to achieve a resolution and you know it will try to play as constructive a role as it can in that because what the government in Dublin wants more than anything is a solution in the north and it is maybe not you know, so concerned with, you know, preserving the watertight integrity of the single market as it is with achieving some sort of a an accommodation that everybody can live with uh, in the North and sort of diffusing the situation. Um, what will make that difficult is the sheer lack of trust that now exists between the Irish government and the EU on one side and the British government on the other side. And Micheál Martin went so far as to say it in the Dáil yesterday that he believes that the British moves have, you know, more to do with the domestic political situation uh, in the UK than with any desire to achieve a solution that's acceptable in Northern Ireland. That sense in Dublin is fuelled not just by the action on the protocol but also by the parallel action yesterday to introduce legislation which will uh, you know allow for call it an amnesty or whatever i mean Dennis might be a better authority on that but will certainly uh, allow some people who were guilty of 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 killings in the north during the Troubles uh, to, uh, to escape prosecution uh, for those acts as long as they cooperate with future inquiries. So there's these two issues that are riling Dublin at, at the moment. Of those I suppose it is, it is the protocol that is going to take up most space over the coming months.
2: Dennis, maybe you can help me understand something. I was watching the new BBC political editor giving Boris Johnson a grilling the other day and accusing him of gratuitously just dragging Brexit back onto the table when he had won an election on the basis of getting Brexit done. And I know this policy we're discussing here is red meat for the a part of the, very important part of the Tory parliamentary party for him. But does it not have electoral risk too, especially at a time when Britain is facing pretty choppy waters economically?
4: I think there probably is a bit of an electoral risk. I mean, it it was interesting to watch the Labour's response to Liz Truss's statement because what they said was, uh, you know, we recognise there are problems with the protocol, but, you know, you signed it. And also, why would you drag us into a trade war at a time when our economy is fragile. So they've been going on the, the sort of the recklessness ideas, not so much on the substance of whether the protocol is good or bad, but mainly on the idea that, you know, you uh, would gratuitously risk uh, this, uh, these trade sanctions, which could damage an already extremely fragile economy. So I think that is a political risk. But as you mentioned, the parliamentary party of the Conservative Party is quite different And if you go back to the beginning of the year when Boris Johnson was in trouble over Partygate, his initial strategy was that he was trying to appeal to all wings of his parliamentary party. And then he discovered that that just ended up causing more trouble. And so uh, lately they've just been focusing on pleasing the right wing of the party. So you've got all of these... um, various uh, crowd-pleasing things for them, like, say, the refugees being sent to Rwanda, like sort of uh, not protecting trans people from conversion therapy. for You know, all of this kind of thing, which doesn't really matter to most people, but it matters to them. And in the same way, the Northern Northern Ireland Protocol matters a lot to them. And what one of the things that's happened in the last few weeks is the DUP and the European Research Group of Eurosceptic Conservatives have sort of come back together again. You remember they formed this kind of strategic alliance uh, between 2017 and 2019 when the DUP had the balance of power. And that ended up in the Northern Ireland Protocol. And in fact, it ended up with the ERG to a man walking through the lobbies to vote for the Northern Ireland Protocol. But anyway, the uh, DUP are back with them. And so I think what, you know, what's happening here really is that the, the right-wing Eurosceptics... They can see that they have some leverage over Boris Johnson because if they were to go en masse and send letters into the 1922 committee, then they could trigger his downfall. And so they've decided that they're going to uh, use this as a lever to make sure that he uh, doesn't agree to any kind of compromise for example, on the protocol that would just resolve those technical issues, because they're concerned about things like the European Court of Justice. They're concerned about sovereignty more than they're concerned about the practical matters of trading between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And so one of the questions that this, uh, all of this begs is, why didn't they go for Article 16? Article 16, obviously, is limited, but it's quick. Like, if you were to do Article 16, you wouldn't have to go through any legislation. They can just do it. And then you automatically, you can just suspend parts of the protocol. So why do you go through this whole procedure for nine months, for a year, if actually what you want is to get results? And the answer, it seems to me, may be that the European Research Group didn't want a quick solution. What they want, to actually, is to keep this pressure up. In a way, one of the things that what they want is not to get a deal, but to prevent a deal, to prevent the wrong deal from happening. And so this lengthy process means that nothing, uh, you know, no deal can happen without, without them, or so they see. Now, Boris Johnson, of course, uh, faces a decision. Does he actually uh, pursue this kind of hard line? And does he risk some kind of trade sanctions? Or in a way, you know, maybe he's thinking, actually, if uh, this legislation is going to take so long, the European response, which is supposed to be a kind of a graduated response, maybe they'll never get around to doing any trade sanctions because we'll never have got around to, to passing the bill. And at the same time, certain facts on the ground are being established in Northern Ireland. So the protocol is not being implemented in full. The fact is that these grace periods are becoming de facto permanent. And unless the European Union decides, well, actually, just allowing this thing to carry on in this sort of limbo way, this is creating and presenting a risk to the integrity of the single market. If they don't actually act, then maybe this strategy of not doing all that much Is not a bad place and not a bad thing for him to do. And for the European Research Group, they're thinking maybe we have him where we want him, and we also have his potential successors where we want them. Liz Truss, if she wants to be the leader of the Conservative Party, she needs the Eurosceptic right. Uh, Many of her rivals, whether it's Ben Wallace, whoever it happens to be, they would also be fishing in the same pool. Uh, you know whereas someone like Jeremy Hunt obviously would be fishing on the other side of the party he wouldn 't be getting it, so I think that they uh you know they feel as if they have a certain moment and uh, and and it, and it, but but Boris Johnson, by taking this kind of slow approach, keeping the option of negotiations open he 's keeping his option open too and then and this is one in a sense for Freya, where does it leave the d u p because all the time that nothing is happening the DUP have to stay out of Stormont? Or at what stage do they, in their graduated response, say, step one, we elect a speaker to the Assembly? Step two, we nominate a, sec- a Deputy First Minister. If they go back in, do they have to walk out again? And what are the, what's the political cost for the DUP of sitting outside the institutions in Stormont for a year? Those are
2: enormous questions, Freya, actually. I mean, I'm fascinated by that, by, by Dennis's analysis of all that, the internal dynamics of the Tory party. The sort of uh, Richard Taylor, Elizabeth Burton, second marriage between the ERG and, and the DUP and the hope that things will turn out better next time. Everything based upon monumental levels of distrust, it seems to me, on all sides. How is the DUP going to play all that if Dennis is right, which I, I suspect he is?
5: Yeah. And I mean, this is the big question. And just listening to Dennis, I mean, you would have to be really worried about the prospects of, of any sort of, um, I was going to say short term solution. I haven't spoken to anybody who thinks that there's going to be um, a short term solution to this crisis in, in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, a year potentially more. At this point you would have to have assumed that there would have been another election or, or maybe not. You know, we've seen in the past where there's supposed to be an election called and, and it, it hasn't happened. But I mean the question sort of facing the DEP and, and and the question really that I still can't figure out the answer to is what is what is their exit strategy because they've gone all in. Um they they didn't they didn't even agree the nomination of a of a speaker so we we didn't even have this kind of halfway house where we would have had sort of this zombie executive but the assembly would still have sat and that would have been really important for, for the optics you know we would still have had MLAs in the chamber d- debating things you know we wouldn't have had the executive but it, it was kind of this it was like what we would have had uh, before the election instead now we have pretty much nothing, you know, we, we have caretaker, ministry, we have no assembly, we have if pretty much no business going on in, in Stormont. The DUP has calculated that this was their gamble, if you like, that they needed to do this to exert maximum leverage on the UK government to give them the changes that they needed with the protocol. Um, now, that's a massive gamble, because essentially what you're doing is you're you're putting the solution to all of this firmly on somebody else who you do not Trust and Geoffrey Donaldson and other people in the DUP have said repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly over the last few weeks, it's about this decisive action. You know, it's not about words, it's about decisive action. And we heard this again yesterday in the wake of what Liz Trust said. So, you know, what is this decisive action? What does that look like? It certainly wasn't the more words that we heard yesterday. So so the DUP has painted itself into a, a massive corner. And, and to go back to what I said earlier, I, you know, I don't know what the exit strategy is. I mean, everybody agrees that there needs to be some sort of changes to the protocol to sort out these technical issues. But where where is this going to come from? And the DUP has been so strong and, and, and so firm and so fervent about the need for this decisive action that that certainly not at this point, it's going to be very difficult for them to start to backtrack from that to say, well, actually, that's that's sufficient for us. There's our defi- decisive action. Try and sell that to the party. Go back in. And if they go back in, then they lose their, their leverage. Do they go in and out? The whole thing starts to become a bit ridiculous. And in the meantime, you have the other parties, um, all of whom are really angry about this, um, all of whom want the assembly up and running. You have the two governments. There are negotiations ongoing, but there will have to be some kind of long period of negotiations to kind of get this back up. You know, at at what point does the DUP decide that it's it's got as much as it can get and go back in while still saving? I mean, you, you can tell I don't know the answer to this, and that you, you know who knows what might happen other than this the next week or the or the next week that might upset. I was going to say upset all of this delicate balance, but it actually isn't a, a delicate balance. It's really just a, a bit of a mess. And I mean, it it's worth saying that the majority of people in in Northern Ireland don't want this. Um, And when you look at polling, you know, there there is polling out there that says the majority of people from both communities want a negotiated solution to this on the protocol. They want the, the executive to jointly seek mitigations and easements from the EU on this. They also want people back in the assembly. They wanted an assembly up and running. So the longer this goes on, the greater the, the, the annoyance and the disconnect and, and the worry from people I mean on, on local radio local BBC radio up here this morning, there were senior health officials talking about their fears for, for what this is going to do for the health service. you know all of this will will build and we're talking about I mean the, the p- potential initial six month deadline and potentially then another election. I mean, I, I'm far from convinced that an election would actually solve anything. But one of the d- things that the DUP will be thinking about is, would it just be worse for them? You know, what happens if we have an election after six months or more of this? You know, they could come back in an even worse position. So that, again, is another gamble for them and something that something that they'll be thinking about. But again, you know, as to what their exit strategy is at the minute, I just don't see it.
2: Pat, a last thought from you. I mean, both in terms of the East-West connections that underpin the Good Friday Agreement and then the broader EU-UK negotiations or, or or lack thereof. Where does the Irish government stand on this now? What is the way forward? If you accept Dennis's analysis of what how, how this is likely to play in Westminster and Freya's description of the situation in Belfast.
0: Yeah, the obvious implication is that it's very hard to see a way forward on any of those tracks. And this is the thing that is causing such pessimism in Dublin uh, at the moment the history of the northern ireland peace process is that it progresses progress is made on the ground between the parties in northern ireland when the two governments in london and in dublin are working together to push one pushing the orange side the other pushing the green side towards compromise accommodation and making the power sharing uh, agreements work that's when you've seen progress but that unity of purpose and that closeness of consultation prior to action is now gone not just on the protocol stuff but also on uh, on the legacy stuff and it's hard to see a way around that for now or how you know how progress is achieved because both sides have now such differing interests in this game, so yeah. Sorry to, sorry to emphasize the pessimism, uh, but I think it's the only implication from what the two guys have said.
2: Mm, on that unhappy note, we will leave it there. Uh, thanks to to Jennifer to. For joining us earlier. Thanks to, to Freya, to Dennis and to Pat. Uh, our producer is Declan Conlon. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back in your feed very soon but in the meantime you can contact us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.